almost all of us need to deal with opponents and adversaries in the workplace. On this episode, Peter Block teaches us how to navigate the politics when we don't see eye to eye. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 328. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. It's probably been 10, 15 years that I have been recommending the book, The Empowered Manager by Peter Block. Whenever a leader comes to me and says, I'm trying to navigate politics in the workplace, or I'm overcome by organizational politics, uh, what's the right framework in order to navigate that well? This is always my first recommendation, and I'm really thrilled today to be able to welcome Peter Block to the show. Uh, he is someone who's a really um, been an inspiration and, um, and a touchstone for many of us who want to think about organizational politics and so, many, so much else about working with people in an effective way. Peter is an author, consultant, and citizen of Cincinnati, Ohio. His work is about empowerment, stewardship, chosen accountability, and the reconciliation of community. And he is the author of several best-selling books, including Flawless Consulting, A Guide to Getting Your Expertise Used, Stewardship, Choosing Service Over Self-Interest, and what we're going to be speaking about today, The Empowered Manager, Positive Political Skills at Work. And he is also a partner in Design Learning, a training company that offers workshops designed by Peter to build the skills outlined in his books. Peter, so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Well, thank you, Dave, and thanks for caring about this work for a long period of time. It's very, very nice. You know, you, you write a book and you wonder, was there a reason to do it? And so you give me a reason. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I've just found this book to do a brilliant job of, I, I think, two things. On one hand, capturing the complexity that is due of organizational politics, because it is very complex. And also at the same time, there's a simplicity and an accessibility about it that I've always appreciated. And and the chapter in particular on negotiating with allies and adversaries, I've found to be so helpful to so many of us in how to navigate this. But I want to step back for just a second and ask you about the word politics, <laughs> because it comes with a lot of baggage these days. And something you said in the book really strikes me. We become political at the moment we attempt to translate our vision into action. Tell me more about what that means. Well, leadership to me is the capacity to initiate an alternative future. Okay, I would make a distinction between leadership and management. Management is giving order to the world. Needed, good thing. Leadership is to have created in the world. And uh, to be political is to be willing to take a stance. Is to be willing to care about something, to have a set of values. And politics, and to be political, means I, uh, I've shown up. And uh, much of the world you know, uh, is naively peace-minded and saying, and most organizations are conflict-averse, anxiety-averse. They want things to go well. They want the, the, the not-dominant value of institutional life 
is consistency, control, and predictability. And for years, we would do studies about you know, climate and culture. And the first response, no matter what we found, was, I'm not surprised, as if the biggest fear was to be surprised. Oh, you say the, the, the place is hell, the building fell down over the weekend? We expected that. And so this is the dominant. And so to be political is to be willing to wade into the world that wants consistency, control, and predictability and take a stance. And there's nothing negative about that. There's nothing negative about being powerful. I wrote the book before I named it because I thought it was about positive politics at work. And then I read the book, and after you write it, then you ask yourself, what is this book now about? And when I said, well, how about calling empowerment? So, no, no, you can't use the word empowerment. It's too threatening. It's too unsettling. Power to the people. This was 1987. You're recovering from the 60s. And the heck with it. It's about empowerment. So to be empowered is to feel you have a choice to create the kind of organization you want to inhabit. It's not a verb. You don't empower other people because that's patronizing in its nature. And so to be political, but then you talk about what, poli- what kind of actions we might call po- are useful, have integrity, take a stand, give expression to something we believe in. And unfortunately, the manipulative side of ourselves has captured the word political as if it's something negative. But 100 years ago, 200 years, being, being a politician was honorable. Mm. Now we can't even get the best people to run. To be a public servant was honorable. And now we say, oh, well, he's, you know, he's a politician. So part of my intention in that language, and even in this discussion, is to, is to make noble valuable again. The fact that I came here to push, I came here to stand, I came here to create, we came here to do this, now I'm going to do it in as, as reciprocal, ethical, balanced a way as possible. I was having a conversation with a client a leader in an organization recently, a, a large government organization, and he was making the point to me that a lot of the people that feel very disenfranchised in the organization have made the choice to see politics as always a negative. And the people who are the fewer and further between, who really see the opportunities and are able to influence in positive ways have done what you just articulated, Peter, have, have seen politics, they're certainly the realities of the negatives, but, but have also looked at politics as a positive thing, as how do I learn the skill set and utilize that skill set, and, and like you said, the rails, in order to influence positive change in the organization. And uh, I, I just, I love that perspective. Um, and it, it's something that I, th- I think a lot of people still miss today. I think the best of politics is to, is to have a stance uh, recognize my interests, pursue my interests, but pursue them in a way that honors yours. And that the notion of opponents and adversaries and allies says that I'm going to uh, be an advocate, or take a stance for my department perhaps, for the company perhaps, whatever, and I'm going to respect you doing the same. That's politics at its, at its best. That's what we cannot that's what we miss so desperately on the national scale. One of the things that you have mapped out in your work um, that I've found to be really helpful is just making some distinctions and and putting the rails on, like you mentioned, on something that that is very complex. And 
one of the things you talk about in, in negotiating with others um, is, is two different factors, the factor of agreement and the factor of trust. Tell me more about both of those and how you see those as distinct. I was giving a talk with some company one afternoon, and I was saying, well, when people disagree with you, you got to deal with it. And they're looking at me like, uh, what? And I said, yeah, you got to. So the, the afternoon ended, and I walked away thinking, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And during the night, you know, you wake up at 2 in the morning, and I say, I didn't know how to frame it that made all sides okay. And I came back the next morning, and I said, here's what I'm talking about. There's two questions. One is, how much do I trust you? And if I don't trust you, well, what do I do with that And if I do trust you? And then to what extent are we on the same side on issues? And a lot of people get confused. Uh, they, they think we're arguing, but we'll, the problem is we don't trust each other. Mm. Or they think because we trust each other, we should be on the same side on issues. And so making that distinction allows me to have a choice in how I face you, how I deal with you. And so high trust, high agreement, these are my allies, you know, what can we create together? Now, uh, anything I do with an ally suffers from the lack of dissent. So I got to be careful about that. And if I trust you and uh, disagree, well, you bring out the best in me. I once uh, took tennis lessons from Tim Galway. And he said, what's the point of tennis? And I said, hell, to win. What do you mean? <laughs> what kind of question is that? <laughs> right. I'm paying you for a lesson. You're asking me something stupid like that. And he says, so you really want to win? I said, absolutely, I want to win. He says, well, if you really wanted to win, you'd walk up to somebody and say, do you play tennis? And they would say, no. And you say, good. Stand on the other side of the court, and I'm going to serve to you. And you'd win every point. Is that No, that's not exactly what I – and he said, maybe the, person, the purpose of another player is to bring out the best in you. Mm. It's the purpose of an opponent, somebody who I trust, but sees the world differently, is making me stronger. Is bringing out the that's why I play the game is to develop my own capacity. That's why we compete in the marketplace is not to win, not to dominate markets, and not to be number one. All right, we have all that uh, adolescent language, uh, but the point is, what what can we create? What can we contribute in this world? How can we do it in a way that serves all interests, not just shareholders? Yeah, I re I really appreciate this distinction of uh, here is a situation where you have trust with both of those parties both allies and opponents but your your level of agreement is different and with allies uh, as you talk about you know th there's there are folks that you have high agreement with and also high trust and one of the things that you say in your work is one of the best ways to approach allies is to put your worst foot forward what do you mean by that that's how you uh, achieve intimacy and power in the world your power, my power comes from my willingness to be vulnerable. If I have to have it together all the time, then you're only getting a part of me. You're getting a construction, you're getting a role player, and too much in work life, it's role playing. Play the role of a manager, you know, look good all the time. PowerPoint is a way, power of power is the point. The purpose of PowerPoint is for me to stand in front of a bunch of people and not have to say anything. Hmm. All right, and so it kind of gives me comfort. There's no more bored person than the one running the PowerPoint conversation. 
because they know exactly where they're going, exactly what they want to say, and they're hoping to get through without disagreement. And that's a, so a bigger version of you and I is our willingness to be vulnerable and trust each other. And out of that comes connection, comes affection, comes intimacy, comes our ability to withstand the world, and the world is hard. You know, there is no North Star. There is no happy ending. The world is just hard. And so the vulnerability... And, and uh, that's the dark side of, ma- of the masculine side, is we're not good at that. And what's interesting about my worst side of vulnerability, it's so visible to everybody else except me. I'm the only one that's fooled. Uh, so true. So by true. my perfection and my being cool and talking too much and looking good and making eye contact. That's how I got through school, was leaning forward, making eye contact, and acting as if I was interested. <laughs> and, Unfortunately, I didn't learn anything. Oh, was that the point? I don't know. And so that's the idea about vulnerability. Because when you're vulnerable, all you're doing is acknowledging what the world already knows. Mm. And if that's true, then the more vulnerable I am, that's how trust gets built. So allies are a great place to bring that out because because we have high agreement with them, because we have high trust already. They're, they're, the, they're the safe people that can really help us to see ourselves in a way that, like you said, it, you know, it's obvious to everyone else, but we don't necessarily see. Correct. Huh. And, and opponents. Opponents also very useful that way Yeah, because we trust each other. Yeah. And this is something that I struggled with a bit when I first saw this model and thought about opponents because I think so many of us, I know I've done it, is we, we look at opponents and we're fearful about engaging with them. And we sometimes conclude very quickly that we don't trust them or we don't, we don't have trust with them. And, and yet, like you said with the tennis example, opponents can make us so much better. You said the word confusion a, a few moments ago. How have you found over the years that you've helped people to move beyond the confusion of confusing the opponent with maybe the adversary you ask the question do you trust this person well what do you mean trust what do you trust them basically to tell you the truth when they say yes do they mean it do they keep their word do you feel you're being manipulated Mm. Mm. such a major distinction there well one of the terms i i love that you have in the book is the terms bedfellows and you define that as different than opponents. These are people that we have low trust with, but high agreement. And one of the one of the things you you say in the book, uh, I, I I love this this paragraph. The traditional view of deal making with bedfellows is smoke filled back rooms and closely guarded aces played at the eleventh hour. Leave this to the movies and the state capitol. Our trip is on Main Street in full view for all to see. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an argument for realism, for realism, and not mythology. And pe- people are very, it's very hard to see the world as it is now. Uh, even in the community work I do now, people have stories about what happened six years ago that's driving their behavior at the moment. And so I have to let go of my own mythology. My favorite quotes in the world is that in Russia, even the past is unpredictable. And I thought, same for me. 
And so uh, how can I show up in the world and say, well, what's here now? Now, I may have a history with you that leads me to say I don't trust you. But if I am more powerfully driven by an intention, what I want to get done here, what this business needs, what does this community, what's the good, what's good for the institution is the only question, the only question that allows institutions to be successful. The only way a customer gets served is when, when a lot of people are saying what's good for that customer, what's good for the business. And for me to do that, I have to let go of my history, of my story about you, at least for the moment. I, you know, some people, I have a thing about, I can remember people that I was mad at in 1966. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy's name was Ed. And I know there's some part of me just doesn't want to give up on that. You talk uh, about 50, him in the book. I know, it's 50, 50 years ago. And I, I, I don't know, so I can't live without uh, people on the other, you know, without blaming somebody. <laughs> I can't, but I don't want to organize my life around that way. You know, I, gossip is fine. It's just not powerful. Complaining is fun, but it has no power. As soon as people start complaining in a room, they've, they've chosen helplessness. They're satisfied, and so the book is an argument against complaining. And the bedfeller confronts me most powerfully in that way. Is this, look, at if we want to get something done and I have a history or a story, set it aside for the moment. I'll come, it'll still be there tomorrow. But for the moment, let's, what do we want to do together? What do we want from each other? Let's go ahead and do this. I think so many of us can think of someone we work with, an organization, or maybe even a client or customer that you know is a bedfeller. We have high agreement with, or maybe we have agreement with in this situation, but we don't generally trust when starting off in a conversation, in a negotiation with that kind of person, what are some things that we should be thinking about that maybe are different than how we are approaching a conversation with an ally or an opponent? I want to make sure my story about the person is accurate. I want to test. I don't want to let my mythology blur our interests at the moment. So I start by saying, tell me at this moment on this issue what matters to you. What are your interests here? What would you like to see? What do you, what, why was it important for you to be part of this conversation? These are simple discovery questions without affect, without myth, without story, without having to clean up the past, without having to say, how did we get here, without any of my little cynicism coming out. Well, you showed up after all. You know, I, I, all of that's in us, in our own little style. We just say, what are your interests here? And, uh, you know, some people call it interest-based negotiation, but tell me what you want. And then when they tell you, you say, let me see if I understand that. Here's what you want with this project. You want it to budget, time, people, outcomes, stuff like that. You want it to report to you. You want it to be under your control. You know, you want to handle the public stuff. And I would say, got it. Now let me tell you how I see things. And just try to begin with some kind of balanced, neutral declaration of what we came here for. And you say, why does this matter to you? And every time I ask somebody where there's some at odds between us, why does it matter to you? Our relationship changed at that moment. The relationship changes at that moment. All of a sudden we realize there's something and I'm bigger for us to do today. And I can stop being so self-centered. And, and identifying with my position. Uh, and to me, that's, uh, that's power. That's real power. And it allows me to be in a room with people I didn't think were possible. 
the fourth part of this quadrant is the adversaries, the, those that you have low trust with and low agreement. And <laughs> you, you call these folks the most engaging and interesting people we have to deal with. <laughs> they are. I've, I've spent my life railing against them. And early in life, they come in the form of parents and family members. But it's hard, and it's hard to let go, give it up. You know, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do about reaching agreement or influencing certain people. Let it go. The most powerful thing you can do is, is to say, God bless them. Let them be. Because I have no access to them. I have no, uh, so why would I put my energy into people where we're going to go nowhere unless I'm trying to prove something, unless winning is my point? And so it was very hard. I, uh, in doing workshops once, we would send people out to work with managers as an exercise. And somebody, they came back, and they said, I said, how'd it go? They said, it was horrible. He didn't want to be there. We didn't want to be there. He said nothing. We said nothing. To him. And they said, what do you do about that, hot shot trainer? And I said, I guess nothing. I wrote, I wrote a section in a consulting book about consulting with a stone. And, and some of my, to hold on to my integrity, I've got to realize there are certain people in this world that we're not going to trust each other. We see the world totally different. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to change them. And in my better moments, I'm going to let them be, because who's to say? Well, this is an interesting, interesting what you just said, because I know there are people listening who are hearing us talk about adversaries, people I have low trust, low agreement with. And they're saying to themselves, okay, that's my boss. And so how do you, if that person is your boss, what do you do? Well, you could ask, here's a, uh, let me be, uh, ask the toughest question, okay? The toughest question, and people have complained to me about their boss all their lives, all my life, is to say, I would ask you the question, why are you creating a boss like this? What are you doing that's helping to create the very thing you complain most deeply about? Nobody likes that question. You need a trusting relationship to ask that question. But if I really think my boss is low trust, doesn't see the world like I do, I've got to turn, I, I, I got to stop talking about the person that way because I do have to live with them, and they are my boss. And if you're looking for an excuse to do something else, well, put this excuse aside and go do something else. But your boss is not your father, is not your mother. They're just a person doing what they do in the world. Let go of it. And, uh, and people get very attached, and I think it's, they just haven't worked out their relationship with, with parents and authority. And the best thing you can do is to say, in your mind to that boss, I'm, I'm never going to be the subordinate you have in mind. What do I want to do with that? Can, do I care enough about the work? Do I connect it to the people I work with? That's enough. Get off it, and I'll stay. If I feel isolated, if the work doesn't mean anything to me, and I've got a boss that I don't connect with, what are you doing? What are you doing there? And the same thing, I, advice I give to bosses, I say the bosses, stop the performance appraisal stuff. There are certain people, some about them just, irritates you. And the best thing you do is say, Peter, you work for me. 
every time you come in the room, I get a little nervous and a little agitated. And I want you to know there's nothing you can do about that. It's just the way it is. So rest in peace. See you tomorrow. You know, and, and somehow acknowledging that when we have strong negative reactions to other people, it's our projection. Because I have to come to terms with these people that I've been so angry with for so long. Other people love them. And they love other people. So I'm just projecting onto them things inside myself that I haven't come to terms with. And so the question, what am I doing to help create or agitate or magnify? If I can answer that question, I've reclaimed my freedom for a moment. As you were saying that, I was thinking of a few people I know in, in my life who are on their maybe third or fourth organization, and the same boss keeps showing up. Not the same person. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, exactly. Beautiful. And, and, I, and I've, I've had a few conversations over the years with uh, some of those folks and saying, you know, you're on your fourth iteration of this. The only common factor here is you. <laughs> right. Uh, and what's the payoff for you to have a boss like that? Yeah, uh, yeah. The payoff. Ask, what's the payoff to you to keep finding this boss in different bodies? And the payoff is that as long as I can blame it on the boss, I don't have to change. I just had bad luck. One of the points you make is many times people view who they think are adversaries are really opponents. What is it that we miss sometimes in labeling people as adversaries too quickly? We have drawn conclusions from painful moments and named that distrust. You know, things happen to us in life. Things happen in our relationship. And something doesn't go well. It's painful to me. I feel wounded by it or angry about it. That's going to happen. The question is, what conclusions do I draw from that? That's what defines my narrative. That defines my life. It's not what happened to me in life. It's a story I tell about what happened to me in life. And so for some reason, I've used the language of distrust because of some event that was wounding or painful or made me upset. And so let go of that. Maybe that, that moment just happened and you don't have to feel better inside your own heart and soul by making that person someone who's called they're not trustworthy. Because none of us are completely trustworthy. And everybody's got an excuse. You know, everybody shows up basically and says, the dog ate my homework. Dogs don't eat homework. But the conclusions I draw from a bad time with that person, let go of that conclusion. Just call them somebody who you had a bad time. And a lot of times their behavior was driven by things you're not even aware of. You have no idea what's going on in their life. And so anytime I hear myself distrusting strongly, I say, so what's in it for me? Peter, uh, you have accurately captured what I expected from you, which is the complexity of the world in front of us. And uh, I think one of the challenges we have as leaders is to be willing to engage with that complexity, to lean into the discomfort. And I really am grateful for you and the work you've done to um, articulate some, uh, some guidelines for us and some thinking in a way to make that really accessible. Uh, you know, we've zeroed in on basically one chapter of the book. Uh, I, I consider this the seminal book on organizational politics. And wow. if you are if you are struggling with this in your organization right now, for those of you listening, I think this this book is just a fabulous uh, read. It's in its second edition. The Empowered Manager: Positive Political Skills at Work. 
Peter, thank you so much for your time, your work, uh, your lifetime of service to this industry. I am so grateful for it. Thank you. You're a great audience and great. uh, It's nice having been created by you for a little bit of time. (laughs) The the pleasure is mine. As I mentioned in the conversation, I've used this model in so many conversations with clients and people I've had the privilege to mentor and coach over the years. And it's been really a helpful model to me as well. So if you know someone in your organization, maybe someone you're leading or someone that you're coaching or mentoring that would benefit from this, I'd certainly encourage you to pass it along. Thanks again to Peter for taking the time to share this model with us. And I have a few pieces of news for you, three night items of news. Uh, One that a few of you may have already noticed if you have access to the free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website, there is a brand new button on the membership portal that says book notes. You may recall I mentioned a few episodes ago that I was starting to publish the highlights that I make when I am reviewing books on my Kindle for interviews. And one of the books I have reviewed recently, of course, is The Empowered Manager here. And I am making available in the show notes a link to that download. But all of this book and all the other books I have reviewed recently are now available. The highlights, at least from me, as far as what I think are the things that caught my attention when I was reading the book and some of my notes are now all available for download in PDF version, you can access those just by activating your free Coaching for Leaders membership. That's at coachingforleaders.com. Just check out the book notes button and you will see an alphabetical list of all the books that I've done that with so far. And there's just about a little less than a dozen books up there now. And I'm going to be adding to that more and more as time goes on now that I'm using the Kindle platform for all of my book highlighting. So I hope you find that to be helpful. I know a bunch of you had downloaded the recent ones in the weekly leadership guides, but those are now going to all be archived on the membership portal. So uh, check that out if you haven't already. Uh, Two other pieces of news. I've been getting a bunch of questions in the last week or so of people asking about the Coaching for Leaders Academy and saying, hey, when's the next application going to be? Well, if you are a manager executive or business owner, and you're wanting to accelerate your leadership skills, especially coming into the new year here, and if you're looking for objective perspective that you don't find internally and want a team of trusted advisors who provide regular coaching to you on some of the toughest situations and decisions you're dealing with, I hope you'll consider the Coaching for Leaders Academy. You've heard me mention it before. It is an exclusive year-long leadership development cohort that I lead personally. The Academy is an intimate group of participant leaders who work with me to develop excellence and empower each other. And I am going to be opening applications again here in early January 2018, so still a couple of weeks away. However, if you would like to get an early alert when applications open, just go over and visit coachingforleaders.com slash academy. That will get you onto the early alert list and you will be the first, uh, at least among the first people to know when applications do open. So again, early January 2018, go to coachingforleaders.com slash academy and more coming soon in the next few weeks. Now, probably the most timely piece of news, uh, just in the next 24 hours, the course five days to your best year ever is going to be closing. You heard me mentioned last week that we've affiliated with Michael Hyatt again this year to offer the five days to your best year ever course. I am participating again myself for the fourth year 
in a row and also working personally with a number of you here in the Coaching for Leaders listening community. And if you do elect to participate in the course, I'm inviting you to join with me personally and other listeners to collaborate online. We have just launched a private LinkedIn group for listeners who are participating in the course. It's going to be active through the end of January 2018, and we are off and running, but uh, the deadline is fast approaching. If you are listening to this episode when it comes out, the last day to get access to the course and the LinkedIn group is going to be Tuesday, December 19th, 2017. So if you're listening to this after that and you didn't get in, there will be another opportunity next year. But if you are listening to this right when it comes out, if you decide to participate, here's what you need to do to get access to the course. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash best 2018. So again, that's coachingforleaders.com slash best 2018. Uh, register for any version of the course. There's three different versions. And once you get the receipt from Michael's team, email me at best2018 at coachingforleaders.com. So again, that's best2018 at coachingforleaders.com. Once I get your email with the receipt, I will get you access to our private LinkedIn group where I will be working personally uh, with many of you over the next 45 days in order to help you to make the most of 2018. So uh, check that out. Already the conversations are starting in the group, and I hope that you'll uh, take my invitation to join with us as well if 2018 planning is something that's on your mind right now as it is for me. Now some related past conversations to today's episode with Peter Block. If you found this conversation helpful today, I hope you'll also check out episode number 164, How to Handle a Boss Who's a Jerk with my friend Tom Henschel. If you are in that situation, it's a tough situation to be in. Many of us have been in that situation in our careers, and uh, I've received lots of questions on that topic over the years. Tom and I put together an episode a while back on really answering that question. Uh, When you find yourself in that place, how do you navigate it? What can you do practically? What are the things not to do? Episode 164 is absolutely to listen for you if you're in that situation. Episode 210, I'd also encourage How to Tame Workplace Incivility. Sharon Bar-David was on that episode uh, back when it aired, received so many wonderful comments about the message from Sharon and how incivility shows up in the workplace, oftentimes unintentionally. Sometimes we say things or we communicate things that we don't necessarily mean or we send the wrong message in our organizations. I'm also thinking a lot about that conversation in the context of the Me Too campaign and so many things happening in the media right now that we're seeing with um, leaders and people who have power who have made a lot of mistakes with that. If you haven't listened to episode 210 and that's something you've been thinking about, I'd certainly encourage that as well. Also, a must-listen episode on organizational politics, episode 229, Leadership Lessons from the Challenger Disaster. Many of us have read about the lessons of organizational politics from the Challenger Disaster back in 1986, uh, but on episode 229, I had on Al McDonald. Al was the one person that was involved in the conversation the night before with Challenger who refused to sign off on Challenger's launch. If you haven't heard that conversation, you must listen to episode 229. So many lessons on organizational politics, influence, and the and it's just a fascinating story about the night before uh, Challenger's launch, episode 229. And then finally, episode 271 will also be helpful to you. On that episode, I had Judith Glazer on. Judith and I talked about how to increase 
your conversational intelligence. Uh, We talked about that a bit in today's conversation as well. And that's a fabulous compliment to Peter's model. When you're having those conversations with opponents and adversaries, how do you approach it in such a way that's intelligence, practical, and is going to help both of you get the best possible result? Episode 271 is a great listen for that. All of those episodes you can reach at coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. Thank you to C22831 for the review on iTunes. I appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a rating or review as well, go to coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. The next Q&A show is coming up in a few weeks here in early January. We uh, skipped it here in December uh, since we did the gift episode back in November. But if you've got a question for us, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Have a great week and see you next Monday.